Are you feeling stuck? Are you searching for purpose and a more fulfilling life? Are you looking for inspiration and encouragement? Then this is the place for you. I'm Brooke Moore. I'm Gretchen Jackson. I'm Kelly Strother. I'm Tharwit Lovett. We are Shifter. In this podcast, we will address all things mindset. You will hear real stories from real women who have faced their fears, crushed their limiting beliefs, and have turned their mess into their message by shifting their mindsets and leveling up in business and life. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Shift Her Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Kelly Struther, and I'm so excited to introduce to you our special guest for today. Inez Velasquez McBride is a pastor, preacher, reconciler, and speaker. She's currently a chaplain at Fuller Theological Seminary. She is a co-lead pastor planting a multi-ethnic church with her co-pastor Bobby Harrison in Southern California. She's originally from Nicaragua. Inez earned her Master of Divinity at Fuller Seminary and has 19 years of combined ministry experience in church planting and pastoral staff leadership in multi-ethnic churches. She has spoken in church pulpits across the nation, as well as at national and regional conferences, sharing her passion for multi-ethnic church planting, racial reconciliation, the full inclusion of women in pastoral leadership, and cross-cultural competency. She was the recipient of the Ian Pitts Watson Preaching Award. Inez has written for She Loves Magazine, and has been a contributing writer for She Is, Biblical Reflections on Vocation Workbook, and Life for Leaders for Fuller's Dupree Center of Leadership, where she is also a leadership coach. Inez has been married to her husband, Rob, for 15 years and loves being a soccer mom to her son, Nash. Welcome, Inez. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Kelly, for inviting me to be here. Yes. So I would love to um, go ahead and just dig in deeper a little bit more with your story. I love just that you're following so many of your passions and would love to know about your journey into ministry. Was that something that you always had a heart for or kind of had a turning point in your life that put you in that direction? There was definitely a turning point that put me in that direction. I grew up in Nicaragua and I am a third generation pastor. My grandfather was a pastor in Nicaragua. My dad is a pastor. He actually lives in Arkansas right now. And I kind of bumped into ministry because um, coming from a very patriarchal context, I couldn't see who I could be. I never saw women preaching. I didn't see female pastors growing up in Nicaragua. So I don't think that my calling found me until way later in life. It was more like a long direction, a long road in this, in a, a very difficult and confusing direction. I also think that the church helps you be confused about your calling because of gender roles, because of what women can do or cannot do. And so if I heard a calling early in my life, it was probably confusing. It wasn't clear. Even though my father was a pastor, I couldn't see myself in him, right? Um, But one turning point that I don't want to dismiss is that from a very young age, my father was what I call a prophetic disruptor. He was actually not very patriarchal. He never wanted me to give any excuses for not being able to do anything in life. He did not want gender to be a barrier. 
And that was a disruption to the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And so he put me in front of a pulpit at a very young age, in front of a mic, in front of a pulpit at 14 years old. I wouldn't say that I heard my calling in that moment. Uh, I was so afraid. I was bashful. I threw up before heading to the pulpit. I was translating for another preacher. And uh, that preacher specifically was like not, not comfortable because I was young, because I was female. And I agreed with him. I did not want to be there helping him. Um, I was so bashful. But my father saw something in me that disrupted the narrative that I think started putting me in a, in a different, going in a different direction. And I don't want to dismiss that because those are important moments when, I, when we go back. Um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about, about imposter syndrome. We have to remember those times when we were told that we couldn't do something for whatever reason. Yes. That we were wounded for whatever reason. And I call those competing memories when it comes to imposter syndrome. But then there's also centering memories. So in, that, in this example that I'm sharing with you right now, for example, um, that pastor did not want me to, pre- to translate for him because I was female, because I was young. I mean, I was wearing braces and uh, my English was not even that great back then. But my father said, no, my daughter's going to translate for you. If you want to preach at my church today, my daughter's going to translate for you. And I just did not think that was a good idea. So that was the first time that I heard a man say that I couldn't do something because of my gender. But that was also the first time that I heard a man say, no, you are going to do this and she is going to do this. And this barrier is going to be broken. And that was the first time that I felt, um, once I got up to the mic, that I felt uh, like that the Holy Spirit was in control of me, that I, I was, I felt beyond myself. In that moment, I spoke clearly. I spoke um, eloquently. I was going stride by stride with that preacher. And I had never heard my voice until that moment. That was the first time that I saw and I heard the strength of my voice. And I think that's important for us women to know. We talk a lot about, well, I need to find my voice. I need to find my voice. I don't think our voice is lost. It's just been either silenced, suppressed, but our voices are there. The first thing that we do when we are born is scream, yell, cry out. Before we even, we don't remember that memory, but that's the first thing that we do. We have a voice as women. And the first thing that we do when we're born is like, right? Okay, that was a terrible baby cry. But um, so going to go find your voice, it's, it's inside of us. And that moment was a turning point um, in my life, my father being a, a disruptor of patriarchy and putting me in a direction that could help me. But still, I was in churches that did not welcome the fullness of women, the full gifting of women. And so the church um, did not help me to for that calling to be clarified. So it wasn't until I got to college that I heard a call to ministry. I thought that meant I was gonna be a missionary again. I was 20 uh, something years old and because I didn't have models, it, it took me five years to realize that first came the calling to ministry. Second came the naming five years later, the naming of pastor. And it wasn't until I was doing ministry in a context that welcomed women that the church called it out in me and said, you're a pastor. And I said, oh, no, 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 women can't be pastors. And so it took five years. So my calling into ministry, and I think for all women, are calling into some sort of vocation that requires that courageous risk-taking, finding your voice, overcoming, um, limiting narratives, can it take a long time. But I think for our, our brothers, for our male friends, it could be like, oh, in one minute, you're like, oh, I, I want to be a pastor. And sure, I see male pastors around me. 
I can be a pastor. I knew I could be a doctor because I knew female doctors. And in fact, I was headed to medical school. I know I could be that because I saw the models, but I didn't see the female pastor models. So it took longer to get into ministry. And what a great point you bring up that we all have our voice, but we just really need to stop listening to those narratives, those limiting narratives and go after it in our own truthful way. Such a, do you think that that possibly kind of pushed you into going after women in leadership as well? Absolutely. It became something that was both personal and collective. I have come to a point in my life that for me, it's not enough to just get myself unstuck, you know, with with these uh, limiting ideologies, restrictive ideologies. I'm here to get the whole place unstuck. And um, it's really, you know, it's really uh, sounds sexy and romantic for us to like, oh, break glass ceilings, right? (laughs) But nobody tells you that you get cut with the same glass shards that you just crushed, that you get cut with that. And so that another another turning turning point in my life, when you when you say thank you for that question, Kelly, um, to go after women in leadership is I realized I was here also to help free other women to uh, get whole systems and structures that were not made for us, uh, I think they need to be uh, recalibrated, restructured, right? Right. We see it in government. We see it in in the medical system. Uh, I worked at a hospital for eight years and I saw a lot more female nurses and doctors and therapists. Without the role of women, without the leadership of women, I started seeing in our secular world, uh, for lack of a better wor- word, the beauty of the gifting of women and their leadership. Why couldn't that happen in the church? Why couldn't we receive the full gifting of women in the church? And so I think the church in the United States and the global church around the world, because patriarchy does not discriminate, <laughs> um, it has an anemic imagination and has had an anemic imagination and has always been behind in some of the advances that society Uh, has had. And so, yes, I decided that part of my calling in life was not only to live into my calling, but to uh, help clarify the calling for other women as well. And for me, that involved systemic sexism, to address systemic sexism in structures and in organizations, be it the community organizer, be it the nonprofit, but especially the church, because I love the church, even though the institution of the church has hurt me so badly. Um, I still love the church and I, I believe in the witness of Jesus and how he welcomed the women into his posse. Um, he had female disciples as well as male disciples. And so the ethics of Jesus uh, guide me into creating, and right now I'm a church planter uh, with my co-pastor, Bobby Harrison, and we're trying to create from the beginning systems and structures that would not limit Uh, the full contribution of women, because we don't benefit from a disempowered church. We benefit from an empowered church. When, when everyone brings their full giftings, it's, it strengthens the collective. Absolutely. The United Nations knows that the United Nations commission for women says you educate a woman, you educate a nation. Why not the church? Why not the church? So yeah, I do feel it's my passion in life. Well, and I'm just thrilled to even know you and and what you're doing for women is, I think, so important. Um, That collective, you know, equality that we really want to see in churches. I think it is so important for more women to feel 
that they are led into their story and kind of embrace that feminine energy. We certainly need more of an equal feminine and masculine energy to be able to bring that collective forward. That's so, right. Absolutely. And so I'm going to shift gears just a little bit because we do love to kind of dig deep into the mindset here in the Shifter mm -hmm. podcast. Um, so I would like to know if there is a significant breakthrough or something that kind of played a role in changing a specific belief in your own mindset. Yes, I think this principle goes beyond uh, just for the faith-based organization or for the church, right? Uh, because I am a pastor and so that's my role and vocation. But something that helped me um, change my mindset, shift my mindset, was the importance of asking curious questions, the importance of asking provocative questions. When I was learning English uh, and I was maybe in the seventh or eighth grade, I used to ask my teacher, uh, can I go to the bathroom? And he would just kind of like jokingly and sarcastically say, I don't know, can you? <laughs> and I just never understood. It took me like a whole year to realize that grammatically, I was not asking the right way in English to say, I was saying, can I go to the bathroom? That I needed to ask, may I go to the bathroom? Mm -hmm. And so the, I think as women, we have lived in the tension of those two questions. May I preach? Can I be a pastor? But for anything in life, can I do this? Do I have what it takes? Uh, am I good enough? Uh, do I have all that it takes to, to make this happen? And we live in the tension of all of that. And so we have been socially conditioned to believe that maybe we cannot and we may not. And so some of the most provocative questions I asked, and sometimes they were not welcome. And I was just asking a question, where did we get the idea that women couldn't preach? Where, do, where is that in the Bible? And, um, and, and rather than, than see it as an opportunity for growth, I think sometimes um, the questions were, were seen as uh, disruptive, were seen as pro too provocative, were seen as, oh my gosh, rebellious, right? And I lost a lot of friends in the process of answering that question. I, I lost some close friends who would ask me, uh, well, why do you think that women can be pastors? And I think it's, I don't think it's a question of asking, can I be a pastor or may I? I think you wanna know who can be in power because deep, deep down inside, the question is about power and who can have power. And that's what needs to be uh, dismant dismantled. And so for me to ask curious questions led me on a road to dismantle a lot of theology that I had been taught but never questioned. And not that I had doubt, but I think I think the curiosity led me to a, a good, abundant place to, to have a better idea of what God thinks and to develop a theology of a God who, who loves women, who made women in God's own image, who has gifted women, and that from the beginning in Genesis, there was equality at the table, right? But when you present equality at the table now, it can seem as a threat, so I had to ask my, myself the question, why is my voice a threat to some people and not a gift? And I had to change that mindset in myself as well, that my, I had to tell myself, my voice is a gift, not a threat, because everywhere around me, it seemed like it was a threat. And to ask the question, why, why, why? So I had to study the history of women and the leadership of women. I had to study the theology of women and the limiting uh, views of women. And so I had to just, welcome questions. I came to a seminary that you have to ask good questions. In fact, you have to ask better questions um, of, of the biblical text, of, of, of the things going around us. And I was, I think I used to be afraid of asking those questions because I was afraid 
that people would think I was a threat or that I was pushy or that I was bossy in asking those questions. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense that I just welcome the curiosity of, Absolutely. of clarifying questions. It definitely Why makes not? sense. Why not? And also, I think we're just always told, you know, don't question, don't question. So it's, it's something we have to get over in ourselves and also can be scary because, you know, yes. what if those answers are things we're not prepared for? Right. You know? I think it also sometimes takes us on a journey of we ask and then we have to kind of really dig into our own mindset and discover where did we come up with those beliefs and what does that say about ourselves? And, yes. you know, sometimes that really has us changing our own narrative or, or going through times when it, it was really tough and maybe we didn't go about things the right way and how can we learn from that? And so, yeah. of course, our, yeah. our, those messes in our life are such a crucial part of our story because they are ways that we were, were used or we, to help other people. And so um, I know you are no exception to that. Is there a time when you had a mess in your life that turned into a message for you? Yes. At the beginning of my pastoral ministry, I remember that because I had not been discipled by, um, by women who helped polish my sharp edges, I did also did not know the strength. I didn't know the strength of my voice. And when I was finding it, I think I was also surprised about the strength of my voice. And um, I think I'm a truth teller. I, I think I can say that. I, and, I, and I was stepping into the energy of being a truth teller and being and the strength of that. However, I was not, um, I was not, I hate the word, the word tame is not the word I want to use because I don't think we need to be tame women, but I was not uh, sometimes communicating in a way that was edifying to others. So I was in the staff meeting one time and somebody had not done something that needed to be done. And it was clear to me that that miss, you know, was going to have consequences. And I was telling that it was actually another woman. I was telling that woman clearly, truth telling her clearly what she had done wrong, the consequences of her actions, but I was doing so in a way that was not lifting her up at all. I mean, I was right, right? But the way that I was doing it was, was completely wrong. And uh, my pastor at the time pulled me to the side after the meeting in a private place and said, hey, what you said today to so-and-so was right. She, she, she made a mistake. I think she figured out that she made a mistake. But the way that you said it was absolutely wrong. Could you find a better way to say the right thing in a way that edifies and builds up rather than tears down? And so I think that that aspect of my voice, uh, because of the strength that it can bring, I, I needed to be discipled in that. I needed to be mentored that. I needed to be coached in that. And so 20 something years later, yeah, it's been 20 years since that person said that. I'm so grateful that he did, that he stepped to the side because the strength of our voice can be used to, to help, but also to hurt. And knowing the discernment and the nuances that, of that is very important, especially for women who are finding their voice, who are finding that strength, that the very thing that can be a strength for us could also be very harmful, if not used and tempered, maybe that's the word, tempered in a way mm -hmm. that builds somebody else up. I had a lot of unpacking to do. I think I'd have, I had a lot of, of suppressed anger as well at times that my voice had been silenced and suppressed and I didn't even know it. So those outbursts I had to find, um, and I still do, 
find those places where I feel discombobulated, where I feel like not right, where it doesn't feel like myself and ask the question, what's the thing below the thing? There's something deeper that always needs to be healed and so that we can move further. So that was a mess. I'm still embarrassed about when I think about that. Mm -hmm. I've been asked that in, in interviews before and I think about that. I'm still embarrassed about the way I spoke to that woman. I wouldn't want anyone speaking to me like that. And uh, I had some growth to do. And so we are lifelong learners and that's, the that's an aspect of the maturing of our voice. That's part of the message as well. And we need other women and men to call us out. So we need to be truth tellers, yes, but also truth receivers. And I did not know yet how to be a truth receiver. I like truth telling, right? Yes. But truth receiving requires humility, vulnerability, growth, and maturity. Yes. And I love that you pointed out we are lifelong learners. We, we want so many women to get in power, to find their voice, to use their voice. But just like you said, it has been stifled for so long. And we sometimes just struggle to even be heard. And so, yes, it's so important to not just scream from the rooftops if we're possibly offending others, but to also listen and, and share that voice with love. Love yeah. the way that you describe that. And, you know, even though it may sting, it's certainly a stepping stone in, in our growth process. And that's certainly very valid. If it stings one moment and you get corrected and sent in a different direction, rather than it be stinging 100 times when you keep doing this and when Absolutely. you keep doing this, you know, and we usually do this with the people we love the most as well, with the people in our homes and in our friendships, because they have to love us, right? That's but that is, that is not our mature self. Um, and so we need to constantly be open to, uh, to correction and to growing, to, to get to our most mature and authentic self. Yes. Yeah. And so always grace is required, grace upon grace, as we are always still yes. learning and growing. Mm -hmm. um, so one other question that we had had kind of talked about and asked you about, I love your response. I'm going to read it for our listeners. We had asked you, if you know, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your younger self? And Inez had said, never lose the ability to speak for your former self and your future self. It allows you to have leadership empathy to those who are not yet where you are now. I wasn't always where I am now. To be patient with those still developing their voice and unlearning in order to learn requires humility and leadership in counseling. I said all that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that's such a, you know, as we talked about before asking questions, I do think it's, we don't always expect to have to unlearn in order to learn. And that's just such a valid point. You know, it's, we always talk about being very present and how, you know, we want to be abundantly living life each day, but it's so valid to remember to go back and examine your former self, but also project, you know, your dreams, your goals, and really give a lot of, um, you know, belief to who your future self is going to be and kind of help validate where she's going along the way. That's yes. a great message. Absolutely. And I think that helps build a legacy as well as we are leading, leading women, women who lead and leading others. We have so many women watching us, younger women, not just in age, but younger in their calling and, and development of their vocation, whatever it is. And so to, to know that we're leading without even saying a word. Um, and sometimes I have to stop myself and go, well, remember, you didn't always believe that women could be pastors. So to be patient with those that are still trying to unlearn all those um, less than faithful ideologies, I think, uh, that limited women. And, and then to also look towards my 
future self and not forget that one day I'm going to be later in life and I'm going to look back and say, okay, how did I help the next woman up? You know, how did exactly. I help her and, and not forget how to mentor and coach and disciple when, even if I'm further up, right? And so it's a collective type of healing and it's a collective type of unlearning to relearn, uh, a deconstructing to reconstruct, um, to, to make ourselves whole and authentic and be our most authentic and full selves that takes uh takes a whole community a whole yes. tribe of women yes i think i i saw um you know a quote somewhere that said something about when you you reach where you're going don't forget to turn around and pull up others that are along their way because that was yes. you that was you that's right and hopefully you're carrying them with you right now like right now always be uh, always have someone that's ahead of you and mentoring you and uh, and have a bunch of women around you that you're you're carrying right now um, and investing in in um, in their leadership right now planting the seeds or watering existing seeds uh, you don't have to wait till you arrive at some whatever right this minute you could be teaching uh, another woman to you know, if I, if I was able to get in front of a mic and a pulpit at 14 years old, and all I did was translate for a preacher, that was the beginning of my dad disrupting that narrative. You know, that day I was starting to become a leader. Yes. Um, sure, maybe I shouldn't have been entrusted with a sermon yet. I was so afraid, but that was the beginning, you know, and so meet people where they are and just push them to take the next hard step. Like, what's the next hard step? And I love that you brought up, it's so important and valid to separate ourselves with other women. Um, I personally am so guilty of just thinking I need to go at it alone and not put my burdens on anyone else. And um, I believe it was about two years ago now that I got into a mastermind group, um, which has now become Shifter. We um, have mastermind curriculum for other ladies to get into groups. And it was so powerful because there were ladies from other backgrounds, ladies that were further along than I was. It was quite intimidating, yet really, really got me to open my mind to what creative solutions are, are out there and how we can really strongly collaborate with each other and how valid women are in each other's lives, especially those that you don't necessarily, you know, maybe not in your friend group or not in your family, but people in other walks of life, we have so much to learn from. So much. And, you know, women have, have led together in community for generations, whether it's in Nicaragua, my abuelitas, my tias, my aunties, but here in the United States, just there's an older generation that knows the value of that. And I think at some point, because sometimes we are taught to like, go be a go-getter, go and do things individually, right? And we have lost some of that mindset but especially our grandmothers, no matter what context, no matter what country, our grandmothers and aunties, they knew that they needed each other in order to pull. And there's whole movements where women had to hold together. We, we see just the example of the men going to war, whether it's in the United States or in Nicaragua, who held the homes together, who held the businesses together. Women had to rise up and stand up in those moments to, to pull everyone together. And there's, there's wisdom in those numbers. Lions know that. Lionesses work in, tri in tribes and, and in pods as well. I, I read this book called Lioness Arising by Lisa Bevere. She's not paying me to say this, but she did a study on just the dynamics of female lions, of, of lionesses, and how they travel together. They have babies together. They take care of each other's babies together. They go and hunt for food. And it's, they're not just watching out for their cubs. They're watching out for the whole pride. 
and there's so much intelligence even in this animal it's a beautiful animal and i think you know god has put that in us as well but competitiveness comparison has killed the ability of the female community to be that strong like a lion like the lioness strong right and and so i i just pray that i continue chipping away at any comparison that could kill community any competitiveness that could kill community and so i i even love what y'all are doing because we're pulling ourselves together to be that lioness tribe to have collective wisdom to have collective healing of our own wounds to have collective uplifting of our own voices and so yeah i love what you're saying that we at some point just have to get out of that mindset yes. because we're missing out we're missing out on um, we are and i love that you brought up even our our ancestors you know i think modern women we are such go-getters and such right. you know driven creatures and we do stop i think it's been a little bit lost in re-examining the women that have gone before us in our own past you know they do collectively make up our story they bring forward some of the energy that we are able to put forth into the world and I, it's so valid and yet something that we don't really stop and incorporate into our story often enough yeah into our leadership story absolutely we need to do like another podcast on that <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um so i would like to ask you what are some strategies or tips that have helped you overcome some of the challenges you've implemented in your own life that you might be able to share with our audience I think the imposter syndrome has been that one of the main challenges uh, because we have been socially conditioned no matter what country we have been socially conditioned to to not believe in the strength of our voice to not know that we have a voice not believe in the strength of our voice or not believe that we can lead well that we can lead alongside other women and that we can lead well alongside men and so I I am a part of a cohort of women in leadership specifically their female pastors and there's something speaking speaking again to what we were just saying there's something about finding others who are doing exactly what you're doing and so to be in a cohort that are they're only female pastors and they're a little bit further ahead in some things we have examined when was the first instance of someone telling us that we couldn't do something so there's there's part healing in that and i've had to go back and go okay when was the first time that the seed of smallness was planted in me it is both an emotional exercise, it is a spiritual exercise, it is a, an exercise in thought and memory to go back into our own story, the narrative of our life, and, and ask the question, when was that seed of smallness planted in you? Because when you were born, you, the first thing you did was scream. So when were you told that you couldn't do that anymore? And so we, we did this exercise together, and I can, I can even share this with you later, where we had to go back. And I was able to locate that day at 14 years old when I heard this man, oh, she cannot do this because she's a woman. And so then that seed of smallness grows. You don't even realize others are watering it. I'm watering it. And then it grows into something gnarly that yes. you don't even realize is affecting your voice. Because if you looked at me on the outside, I was going to go to medical school. I was, you know, top of my class. My dad, you know, emphasized education. It wouldn't have looked like that I had a seed of smallness about my voice in me. But specifically with women in leadership and in pastoral ministry, I did have that. I did have that internalized, what I call internalized gender oppression. So I went back. I looked at where that seed of smallness was planted and I yanked it out. 
And in community, I think we need to do that. In community to, to exercise and go back in our story and just right. find that seed of smallness and yank it out and plant something different instead and plant confidence and plant uh, beauty and plant joy and plant affirmation of the gifts that we do have. And so for that, we need other lionesses. For that, we need other women. It's a, it's a vulnerable journey to go back because we have to engage trauma or tragedy in our stories, right? Of different things that have happened to us to send us that message. But it for women, it's not just a message that's out here in the ethereal space floating around no it's deep inside yes our ideologies i think for women are so embodied that when someone says you well you can't preach because you're a woman i don't just think that i also feel it in my body so for women our embodiment is very important it feels like it's us because we can't separate our gender from our body right right and so that was something that I had to do, to go back and yank that seed of smallness. And I do it with other peers. And I, I, I credit my mentor, my spiritual mother, my spiritual mentor, who is a pastor and a racial reconciler. She said, girl, I'm going to yank that seed of smallness out of you. She heard me speak and she heard me, she heard how I spoke about myself and said, where did that come from? Why are you talking like that about yourself? But you wouldn't have thought it, right? But right. behind closed doors, you, we still have these lies that are, that are coming at us. And we need those other women that go, girl, let me yank that seed of smallness out of you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then stop that inside of our own mind. Stop talking to ourselves that way. Yes. I almost, thank you for saying that. Because I used to say, just stop it. <laughs> tell yourself, stop thinking that way. Like, don't even entertain it because it's going to get you nowhere. It's going to yes. get tangled up. <laughs> We even in our um, mastermind community, we actually dove into the imposter syndrome on that negative self-talk and a great tip I heard, which had not, I had not implemented before. And I'm certainly starting now is to not just say, stop it, but to name it, you know, mm. and Gretchen says, stop it, Janet. You know, it puts a little bit more of wow. power on that, but. So to name yourself. Yeah. Name that negative voice. Be yes. able to call it out. Yes. That's good. That's so, so good. We have talked um, a lot about the collaboration, how it's so important among women. Would also like to ask you, I know you're, you're, uh, a big passion of yours is racial reconciliation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, race has been such a uh, thing that has been brought up this year, which needed to be. It's, it's just existed for way too long. Something wow. that we can always, no matter where you stand, no matter what stand you're taking or what action you're taking, we can always do better. Um, you know, we strongly believe that shifter women need to come together and collaborate and also help lift each other up. I would love to know what advice you can give us on how we can be doing better to support our sisters of color. Mm, thank you for asking that question, Kelly. It's a brave question and courageous question. So as a woman of color, I'm Nicaraguan, I'm Latina in the United States, I'm an immigrant. And I always say that racism and sexism are two systems, right? Two twin systems of oppression that uh, limit the voices and restrict the voices and sometimes destroy the voices of women in systems and structures. And for me, I can't separate either one. Like in my body, I'm always female and I'm always an immigrant and Latina. And so I, I have the saying that says that racism and sexism are self-perpetuating self-protecting and not self-correcting 
and they must be interrupted. So none of these systems, if you let them, if you allow them to keep going, they will never correct themselves. And they're worse than that. They're self-protecting and self-perpetuating. And one of the, the, the saddest things for me, as I have been in the church as a pastor for 20 years, is to see that the church has been complicit in those systems as well, that the church has helped perpetuate racism and sexism. And so they must be interrupted. And so we're all in a journey of interrupting those systems. And for me, they always intersect. I can never talk about racism without talking about sexism. And I can never talk about sexism without talking about racism. In fact, sometimes the racism towards me has been sexualized. And sometimes the sexism towards me has been racialized. And sometimes one is more overt and then the other one is kind of polite. They won't say what they're really thinking. And I find that in the places where I've been invited to speak, right? Uh, I was invited to speak uh, at a multi-ethnic church uh, conference of all places to speak on racism uh, a couple of years ago in Atlanta, Georgia. And when I got there, I found out that the pastor did not want me to speak from his pulpit because no woman ever speaks from the pulpit. And so he wanted to demote me. I was the only female speaker, wanted to demote me from being a plenary speaker and send me to a Sunday school room. Because I've done the work of imposter syndrome and I've done the work of internalized gender oppression. I said, no, I am not going to do that. I'm speaking from nowhere but his pulpit, right? I'm no longer complicit in these systems that oppress me and oppress my sisters. But if we stay in those systems, we reinforce those systems and then we, we can't complain about those systems that we're reinforcing. And so in that one moment, that example that I give you, Kelly, I was invited to speak about racism, but sexism almost kept me from it, right? So right. intersectionality is important. So to my sisters of colors that are listening, to my white sisters that are listening, to understand that those systems are always connected. And anytime we see racism, I learned this in one of the classes in seminary, you must ask, where is the sexism here? Ask that question, ask that curious question. And then anytime you see sexism, ask, hmm, where is the racism here? It's always there and always hiding. And it's going to take the awareness and the competency of all of us who are part of the system, we're in different places of the system, me as the brown woman, you as a white sister, it's gonna take all of us to unlock and deconstruct those systems. It's gonna take that. And it's gonna take all of us to be lifelong learners. So to my white sisters, to say, okay, oh my gosh, you know, I may be able to walk through a door, but I know that Ines is not gonna be able to walk through this door. How can I get Ines to walk through this door? To open doors, you know, in the South, one of the things I love is that, you know, gentlemen open the door for you. We should do that for women too. We should be love gentle. That. Is that a word, a gentle woman? Open doors. Uh, yes. Especially when you become aware, Kelly, that as a white sister, yes, you are oppressed over here in one area, but then you have privilege in another one. How will you lever that, leverage that privilege to say, I'm going to open the door because I know how these systems interlock and intersect and it's going to take all of us. Right. And so, um, intersectionality is very important to me and, uh, we need to be informing ourselves. We need to be, yes, reading books, sure, attending workshops, but more than anything, it isn't until you get into the grit and grind of relationships. It isn't until you get into the grit and grind of having a colleague who doesn't look like you and asking those curious questions saying, man, help me understand why is it that when I walk through a room, uh, someone gives me more privilege and they look towards me or they have 
preference towards me or defer to me versus a black sister, for example. Like, help me understand the history of that because that happens. When I wa walk through doors sometimes in leadership with my co-pastor, my co-pastor has said, man, I noticed that this guy would not look at you while you were talking. He, he literally just looked at me. And so my friend Bobby tells the story that often he'll like literally turn his body and look at me while I'm talking so that the other person doesn't look to him. But even in our embodiment, we see yeah. the preferential treatment towards white males or just towards the system of whiteness. So um, the system of whiteness is the one that has destroyed all of us, right? Not white people. I'm saying the system of whiteness that gives preference, uh, preferential treatment to someone who, who is white. And so the beauty is a say, not on my watch. I'm not gonna cooperate with that system. And for all of us, black, white, brown, indigenous, to say we're gonna deconstruct that system is gonna it's gonna take all of us together. So Yeah, thank you so much for expanding on that. Just so important for us to remember to interrupt, like you're saying, and ask those questions and then also um little things, open doors, both literally and figuratively, you know, all those little bitty actions we can take each day. Yes. It's going to really make an impact. Um, and so I would, I, I would like to ask you about one other thing I have mm -hmm. had the privilege, of course, I'm so blessed that I've gotten to hear you and Bobby speaking before. And when I did, you guys brought up such a powerful image that I'd love to share with our listeners. It was, if you're not familiar, it was about the Kintsugi pottery um, in which they, the pottery's broken, but it's also mended with gold leafing. And I know you've, show me an example, you've actually gotten to repair a piece before. And I just love the metaphor as we all, you know, get into finding our voice, examining our stories. We've got trauma, all of us do, but it is in that trauma that is mended where something becomes new and more beautiful and more valuable than before it was even broken. That's exactly it, Kelly. I don't know that I could say it better than what you just said. And I do have the, the pottery right here. And I love how it has the broken fissures and the broken, uh, you can see where the fragments were, uh, were split and crushed. And that is part of, um, of our story, of our healing story. It's, it's scary. It can be vulnerable to go back into our stories and look at our traumas and tragedies. But those things have an effect on our calling, our voice, our vocation. So uh, Kintsugi is a Japanese art that I have learned to appreciate. And there's actually a Kintsugi master in uh, at Fuller Theological Seminary that does these workshops. And it's, it's a very emotional and spiritual experience to be able to, to go back and put back together. And I think the, the most important thing, you said it already, that it's, it's not to, to fix what was broken because some things just can never be fixed. And... Right. Uh, that, that the idea is to mend the, the brokenness and to make something new. And so this piece I broke with a hammer and it was very emotional because I had to think back to a part of my life where I felt this broken, where something had happened to me and I felt less than and I felt like my life was fractured. And as I was putting these pieces back together in, in layers with different, uh, different phases, it took a lot of patience. It took a lot of waiting for things to, to dry. It took a lot of glue. It, it meant that at some point I had to hug this bowl together. And he, the, the Kintsugi master said, just hug it, just hold it and hug it. And I thought, oh my gosh, I felt like I was hugging my younger self that needed to be hugged and loved. 
during this period of time that was traumatic, every little thing about putting this back together. And then to think that this could be a useful vessel, it just, it, right. it was both emotional, spiritual, and uh, healing. Absolutely. Me. I mean, wow. I know in my own story, I always thought, well, you know, I might share it one day, but I'm going to leave out this piece that was really hard or this piece yeah. that might offend. But just in learning, that is something I've lived through. It's something that has been mended and my story is even more beautiful and more impactful because of those things. And so, yes, there's so such a powerful thing that these fractures can be beautiful. And that was one of the words that the Kintsugi master shared with me when he came, he came around, he was looking at, at all of us putting our things together. And I was able to put the the golden thread and he looked at the deepest cut, which was deep, deep down inside. And he said, Oh, that fracture is beautiful. Yes. That too was a mindset to go, okay, that thing broke me. And it also made me, it did something in me. I wouldn't wish that ever again. I wouldn't wish trauma on anybody, but to think, okay, God, how are you going to mend something and make this new? How are you going to take these pieces and do something with them so that they can't be discard discarded? So, Well, you have, you've just given so much wonderful uh, words of wisdom and advice to women. I'm just so thrilled again that you were able to join us on the podcast. We do love to end with a few questions. And so you do not know about these, but uh, they're really great ones. I love to get to ask these questions. So our first one, we are big readers here at Shifter, and I would love to know what is your favorite book? What's your favorite Ooh. book of all time? Oh my goodness. My favorite book, I'm a reader, and I was a Latin American studies major in college, and oh my gosh, that is a difficult question to answer. But you know what, the first one that comes up because I was young, I was in seventh grade, and I was doing a lot of unpacking and growth and maturity. I read To Kill a Mockingbird mm -hmm. in seventh grade. And it, was, it awakened some things in me about justice, about, um, about love, about you know, a segregated society. I was starting to read about that in, in, um, in the seventh grade. And it just awakened, awakened something in me that was deep down inside of me. So To Kill a Mockingbird, I've read it a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So my next question is, what is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? <laughs> oh my gosh. Ooh, the worst piece of advice. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. You know, there's been times that this, this phrase has just been thrown at me um, in, in, my, in my journey, in my curious questioning. Oh, it is what it is or like, just get over it. That's how it is. And, and I think my, my whole being just like responds to that and says, no, why, why is, why is this what it is? Why can't I question this? It is what it is. Just, just get over it. You know, right. love that. Mm -hmm. Um, so to flip the, the coin, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Mm, the best piece of advice, learn to take up space, learn to take up space and walk into rooms in the fullness of authority and confidence and, and power and to be unapologetic about it. And it takes a lot to do, to learn to take up space. That's great. Well, again, Inez, it's just been a pleasure talking with you. I feel like I've learned so much even from our conversation and uh, it's mm. just a joy talking to you. I uh, thank everyone for joining us today and encourage you to visit Inez's 
page Inez McBride at Instagram, and then also search thechurchwehopefor.com where you can learn more about her church planning. We will, of course, drop those in the show notes. But thanks again, everyone, for joining the Shifter Podcast, and we will see you later. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Shifter Podcast. We are here to share stories that inspire so that you can create the life you love now. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review, share on social media, and tell us why it resonated with you. You can follow us on Facebook at ShiftHer, Instagram at ShiftHer.co, and read more about us at www.ShiftHer.co. While you're there, sign up for our High Vibe monthly newsletter, where we share even more inspiration and stories from our Mastermind program. Links from today's episode are in the show notes.